Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 8th, bright and early in California. Uh, Monday morning, usually Monday mornings come with bad news. This one, we have some unusually good news, I think, in many respects. The, over the weekend, the climate, uh, not the climate, the Senate passed the Democrats' climate, health care, and tax bill. Lots of interesting details. This is from the Wall Street Journal, which isn't necessarily the biggest fan of this Senate or this presidency. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with reducing carbon emissions, negotiating the price of prescription drugs, and a number of other details, including a 15% corporate minimum tax. We may be on the verge of what we might think of as tomorrow's capitalism. It took five decades in the making. And of course, the New York Times, as it will, asks why it took Congress so long to act on climate. But Congress has acted on, uh, on climate. Um, it's complicated. Joe Manchin, of course, as the New York Times again reminds us, um, has one finger in one pot and another in the other pot of pipeline giants. So it's not as morally pure as one would expect. But nonetheless, as they suggested, it reflects perhaps a new structure of capitalism, tomorrow's capitalism. I'm thrilled that we are indeed talking about not so much tomorrow's capitalism, but tomorrow's capitalist with a very distinguished guest on the show today. Uh, Alan Murray is a longtime, um, longtime American journalist icon, worked within uh, the Murdoch Empire for many years, now runs Fortune, uh, is a prolific writer, and as I said, the author of this very intriguing new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. Alan, um, has the news over the weekend, does it suggest that American business has finally found its soul, or we found its soul, or Washington, D.C. has dug up its soul? Oh, that's such a complicated question, uh, Andrew. But look, I do think on climate, on climate in particular, business in the U.S. is actually ahead of the government. The government is playing a bit of catch up here. I mean, you look at what large companies are doing on the climate front uh, these days. It's really pretty extraordinary. You take a company like GM, where Mary Barra, a little over a year and a half ago, committed to going all electric by 2035. That's huge. You look at Walmart, uh, which is working with its suppliers in order to get not not only reduce its own emissions, but to get all its suppliers to reduce their emissions. Again, that's huge. So I think business has definitely gotten religion on the climate front. And it's nice to see that the government has finally managed to figure out a way to provide some help. You use the term business finding religion. We did a, a show with Bob Keefe. Uh, few weeks ago um, on American capitalism being an ally in the war against climate change. There are, of course, Alan, as, as, as you know, as well as anyone, uh, many skeptics on this. Jason Hickel, for example, was on the show uh, last year, believes that we can only really get climate change if we disassemble 
capitalism. Um, I'm guessing you disagree on this. You believe that within capitalism itself, the climate can be fixed. Absolutely. Look, I'm a believer in capitalism. I think it has provided uh, more prosperity. I mean, you just look at the last two, three decades, a billion people have been pulled out of poverty around the world because uh, countries like China embrace capitalism. Uh, not because anyone turned away from it. So I, I, I do think, and we know to fix the climate problem, we have to have big technology breakthroughs. So yes, I am a believer that we don't have a better system for addressing big problems than the capitalist system. I certainly think they need help from government. The, the best, we're gonna, we're gonna get to the solution most quickly and probably in the best way if there's some cooperation between business and government. But uh, business and capitalism has to be part of the solution. I'm not sure whether you came up with the subtitle of, of your of your new book, uh, Alan, Tomorrow's Capitalist, um, My Search for the Soul of Business. Um, but can business have a soul? Yeah, I'm, I, I did come up with that that subtitle. And look, here's 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 the fundamental thing. And, and give me a minute to describe this, because in the 20th century, businesses were really devoted to making people work like machines, right? That's what scientific management was all about. You know, the giant factories where everybody is like a cog in the wheel, working with machines to create cars or whatever. Um, uh, That was the nature of business in the 20th century. And what's happened over the last 30, 40, 50 years is businesses have become much more human enterprises. And and let me give you a a single statistic to illustrate the point, Andrew, because I think it's important. If you look at the, if you looked at the balance sheet of Fortune 500 companies in 1970, so 50 years ago, look at the balance sheet, say, where is the value coming from? More than 80% of the value was physical stuff. It was plant, it was equipment, it was oil in the ground, it was inventory on the shelves. That was the stuff you needed capital to accumulate, and whoever had that stuff could create the value. If you do the same exercise today, more than 85% of the value on the balance sheets is intangibles. It's intellectual property, it's brand value, emotional connection with your customers. It's all things that have much less to do with physical stuff and much more to do with people, the people who you who, who work at the company, the people who connect with the company. So companies have, have transformed themselves into much more essentially human enterprises. And that means they have to deal with human aspirations. They have to have values. And in that sense, they have to have a soul. Well, they might, you, it, it, to, to, to quote you, they might have to have a soul, but they don't doesn't naturally come to them. I mean, some of the headlines today are about companies like Starbucks, Apple and Google, where, as you say, all the value is in creativity or innovation. They're not necessarily friendly to unions or, or human labor. So what's changed? Why, why are these companies which are averse, if anything, the Starbucks, the Apples and Googles of the world, they're as averse as ever to the formation of unions? Where, where does that reflect the soul, well, Alan? This is not binary, Andrew, any more than human souls are, you know, that human beings are either good or bad. There's not a simple on-off switch, uh, right? 
what what the reason I wrote the book is because over the course I, I, I I'm in a unique position in that I have lots of opportunities to talk to CEOs about their jobs, why they're doing what they're doing. And I found over the course of the last decade, a very dramatic change in the way they talked about how they do their jobs and, and what they aim for and what their goals are. Uh, and the book was really my exp exploration, my attempt to understand what was changing and why. And I think there is far more focus today on the human impact, the social impact of, of corporations than there was uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean they get everything right. Uh, we could spend the whole 30 minutes debating whether unions are actually, uh, actually make better corporations or not. Uh, I think it probably depends a lot on the union. Um, but what has changed is a much greater focus on social impact uh, than existed 20, 30, 40 years ago when I began my career. It's focus, though. It's, and some people might suggest, Alan, it's just public relations, a clever kind of public relations. We had Peter Goodman on the show last year. He has a new book out, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Uh, Goodman writes for the New York Times as well. One of the figures that he really roasts in, in Davos Man is Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, who, who speaks the ESG language as well as anyone. But as Goodman argues in the book, he's a multi-billionaire, spends most of his life flying around the world, going to places like Davos and talking about ESG. Where, where's the meat here, Alan? Yeah, where's so, the real change when it comes well, to I, people I, like Benioff? I, I hear you. Um, uh, again, it's not binary, just as morality in human beings is not binary. You're not either good or you're bad, but we generally believe that human beings can move towards a, a, a higher state and a better state. I feel the same way about corporations, and I think we're seeing it happen. You say, where's the meat? Again, take a look at a company like General Motors. Uh, when they made the commitment, when Mary Barra made the commitment to go 100% uh, electric by 2035, she wasn't responding to market signals. There, the, the demand in the marketplace at the moment is, is very small. She was saying this is the right thing to do for humanity. When, when Walmart reached out to its suppliers and said, hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to ask all of you if you want to do business at Walmart to get involved in reducing emissions. Uh, that wasn't the old Sam Walton uh, method of beating down costs to the lowest possible level. That was because they felt it was the right thing to do. That's not public relations. That has profound a profound impact. So um, uh, I, I think you're seeing real action. Look, the number of Fortune 500 companies that have made net zero commitments in the last two years. Uh, you know, it's been a, a, a couple hundred percent increase. Are some of those pure public relations? Yeah, I'm sure some of them are. But are some of them real efforts that are going to change the fundamental strategy of the company? Yes. And, and by the way, part of the reason this is happening, it's not because these people have had suddenly some, you know, uh, uh, awakening on the road to Damascus, it's partly happening because they recognize it's good business. 
if you want to attract the best people today, people want to work for companies that are doing good in the world. So you have to show that you care about your social impact. And if you want to exist in the long term, you have to pay attention to these things. You can't be a successful company in the long term if the planet's on fire. You can't be a successful company in the long term if society is in, in revolt with itself. So something real is going on here. It may not be as much as you want. It may not be as much as Peter Goodman wants, but it's a lot different than the way business operated uh, in Jack Welch's era. Alan, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Mary Barra at um, GM a couple of times, her commitment to bet the company on electric vehicles. I, I mean, she's clearly, her, her heart or her soul is in the right place. She might have a soul. But of course, the man more than anyone else who has pioneered all this is Elon Musk. No question. is a brilliant man, clearly, remarkably dynamic, remarkably innovative. But I don't suppose you would want to work for him. Um, he's not really ultimately, when you, you peel away the Twitter layers, he's not much different from Jack Welch. He's just a remarkably dynamic, brilliant man. Uh, but he has changed the business world forever. I mean, one again, looking at the climate piece of it, which I think is very important. One of the things that changed over the last two or three years is that business stopped looking at climate as a kind of a, oh, a social responsibility, you know, oh, this is something the world needs. And so I better do it. But I don't really want to do it. And it's going to cost me money. And then Elon Musk came around and said, No, wait a minute, you can do this and make a vast fortune. Uh, and that had to have an impact on Mary Barr and lots of other people in changing the way they thought about this and said, wait, this is not just a social responsibility. This is a good business strategy. Like this is that that making the world a better place can actually work for us in the long run. And I, I think that was transformational for business. So I give Elon Musk uh, huge credit for that. Would I want to work for him? <laughs> no. Uh, do I think the man has lots of uh, unpleasant personal characteristics? Yes. Um, but he has changed the the dynamic in business, and I think in a good direction. But you said at the beginning, and the heart of your book is about tomorrow's capitalism discovering a soul um, and treating humans as humans rather than as cogs. Uh, Musk, I, I take your point on the climate. You're absolutely right, of course. There's money to be made in the climate, and that's why he's created Tesla and SpaceX and all the rest of it. But he's not treating people any differently. I, I, I'm curious as to this term ESG. I know you're not a believer necessarily in the term, but what does it mean and, and how critical do you think it is or the ideas of it in tomorrow's capitalism? Yeah, I, I, I go back to the way I put it at the beginning. Uh, um, there's a very good book, by the way, uh, uh, a fellow you should have on your show, uh, Colin Meyer, who is at Oxford wrote a good book called Prosperity that looks at how capitalism has changed over the last 50 years. And, you know, he makes the point that that I was trying to get at earlier, which is 50 years ago, financial capital to accumulate the physical stuff you needed to create business value. That was how capitalism worked. And so financial capital was what was in short supply. And it made sense that that's what you focused on. That's not the case today. Today, to, to be a successful company, you need first and foremost human capital. 
Uh, and every CEO I talk to these days begins the conversation talking about the battle for talent, the need for talented people, human capital. That changes the way you think about things. I, I'll give you a, a really simple example. Um, you know, businesses in the U.S. have been trying to stay out of the uh, Roe Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade because there are people on both sides of it, even in their own organizations. But uh, Indiana then went and passed a very restrictive uh, abortion ban over the weekend. And Eli Lilly, the second largest company in the state, a very conservative company, not a woke company by any stretch of the imagination, came out and said, this is going to hurt us. It's going to make us make it harder for us to attract the high-end researchers and engineers, we need to make this company successful. And our only choice will be to locate more of our facilities outside of the state of Indiana. So, you know, they're not doing that because they've they've had a, a, a religious conversion or because they're trying to play politics or because they're woke. They're doing it because their business requires it. Businesses are much more focused on on human capital, human needs, social capital today than they were 50 years ago. And that's why their their actions uh, actions have changed. So th that's what's at the heart of ESG. I think a lot of it's just been misapplied. It's a it's an awkward term created by the UN. It has a lot of internal conflicts and it's been applied in some crazy ways by the investment community. And it has been used for a lot of sort of scam marketing. But the fundamental notion that businesses have to pay attention to people and planet, uh, both for their own success as well as for our own ability to thrive in the future, is 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 very new and 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 different than the way the business world worked when I started forty years ago. Alan, you brought up Mary Barr. Of course, she's one of the the best known female CEOs. We've done a number of shows on women and leadership. We did one with Susan McKenty Brady. Uh, a few months ago, we did one last week with Christy Hunter Arscott on beginning boldly and talking about how courage will enable women to launch a brilliant career. Nothing much has changed. I mean, for all this talk, there's still a, a much smaller percentage of female leaders than there, there should be. Why isn't this new thinking about tomorrow's capitalism, which I think you're right, does permeate uh, CEOs in the boardroom. Why isn't it being reflected in the diversity of American corporations, particularly when it comes to female leadership? What's happening? It's just happening very slowly. Uh, uh, you know, Fortune publishes a list every year called the Most Powerful Women list. It, it ranks the most powerful women in business. When it started 25 years ago, there were like only a couple. I think Catherine Graham, one or two other. Uh, female CEOs on the Fortune 500 today were, were pushing 10%, far lower than it should be, but far higher than it was. So you are seeing progress. You certainly see progress in the boardroom. Higher percentages of directors are female. You're seeing more companies make really concerted efforts to increase representation in their ranks. So I think we are making progress. It's not as fast as you would want or I would want, but it is happening. And it is part of what I'm writing about and talking about in this book. One of the people you bring up in your book is the PayPal CEO, Dan Shulman, another very articulate uh, spokesperson of moral leadership in a new kind of company. 
But companies like PayPal are no more diverse today than most companies in history, are they? I don't have those. Again, to, to come back, and again, I don't want to focus just on PayPal or any other particular company, but my point is that these leaders are talking, giving, articulating a certain message, but their companies themselves aren't reflecting. What needs to change, Alan? Do we need to... Do we need to put more spotlight on diversity? Leaving aside women, certainly uh, African-American representation, especially out here in Silicon Valley, is still deeply troubling. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't have the PayPal numbers at my fingertips. I, I'll tell you why uh, I highlighted Dan Shulman in a minute. But um, I do think if you look at the numbers, what you will see is steady but slow progress not nearly fast enough. I think the board action is important. I, I, and I think more uh, female CEOs are important. I mean, you look at a company like uh, Accenture where you, ha- where you have a female CEO, I think they've done a lot better moving women into leadership positions uh, than some of, their, uh, some of their peers. So, um, uh, So I do think you're seeing action, again, not as fast as you might want or I might want, but I don't think that justifies blowing up the system. I, I, I don't think government mandates are necessarily going to make this better, faster than uh, right now. Let me talk about Dan Schulman for a second, though, because he did something pretty extraordinary that's worthy of note. You know, the Milton Friedman view of the world was that w- when you're dealing with labor, it's just like dealing with iron ore. You pay what the market, you pay the market price, whatever the market will bear, you pay the lowest price that the market will bear. Or maybe if you you know, if you want to make sure you get the best quality labor, you pay a little more than the market will bear. Dan Schulman went in, he had a lot of call center workers who were at the very low end of the pay scale. And he went in and said, you know, I'm not sure that's right. Because if our people can't, don't have enough disposable income to to live their lives in some sort of reasonable fashion, they're not going to be good call center employees. And so he went in and completely changed the way that compensation was determined for call center employees. We're not just going to be a price taker. We're not going to pay whatever the market will bear. We are going to pay enough to give you a level of disposable income that enables you to have a decent life. That was that was a fundamental rethink of how market economics work. And that's that's part of uh, what I'm talking about here. You've seen Walmart do some of the same thing. Again, you know, you're talking about like people making 17 bucks an hour. So it's not like they're rolling in money, but it is a change in in thinking from the Sam Walton days when Sam Walton would have said what Milton Friedman would have said, which is you pay, you, you, you deal with labor the same way you deal with any supply. You pay the lowest possible price that you can that you can pay. It's a much more, again, a much more human approach to business. Um, Alan, one of the, 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 the most outspoken, I think, articulate critics of Biden's economic policy is Jeff Bezos. Um, you've talked about Walmart, you've talked about PayPal, you've talked about GM. Seems to me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, Amazon, Amazon's value is, is, is premised on its, some people might say, exploitation of, of, of human yeah. labor. Others would say, a clever use of human labor. How does Amazon and Jeff Bezos fit yeah. into your argument? I think there's some truth to what you're saying. And 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 if you notice what Andy Jassy has said and done since he, he took over, that's one of the things where you see some some uh, some change. Uh, 
uh, he's apparently concluded, I don't know that he's a better person than Jeff Bezos, but he's apparently concluded that the company in the future has to do has to do a better job uh, taking care of its employees and paying paying more attention to the environment, paying more attention to its social footprint than Bezos did in the early days. I mean, if you read Bezos's letters, you know, he wrote that annual letter, you can actually see this transition happening in the last few years of, of his leadership. Now, you and Peter Goodman might ask the effort, okay, but is it real? Is it, or is it just PR? Fair question, time will tell, but I think there's some evidence that there's a change going on even at Amazon. Alan, we did a show, a really interesting show uh, last year with a UC Berkeley sociologist, Carolyn Chen. She has a new book out, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. She also researched quite a lot of banks on the East Coast. And she found that the workplace and the church are getting mixed up together. Not, she's not critical of American capitalism. I think her argument is there's such a, a spiritual vacuum broadly, atomization, yeah. fragmentation, particularly in our COVID age, that the corporations are the one institution left standing when it comes to trust and morality. Is that your thinking as well? Yes, I, I, th I think she's right. You know, I, I spent a couple, before I came to the Fortune, I spent a couple of years as president of the Pew Research Center uh, mm -hmm. Uh, this would have been about eight years ago, and we did. We were doing a lot of research at the time into the millennial generation. And you look at that research, and one of the things you realize about the millennial generation and younger is that uh, they're slower to get married. So, the, the, you know, it takes it, they are having families later in life. They're much less likely to be part of an organized religious group. They might be religious. But belonging to a church is much less likely. I think that's part of the point in, in the uh, book you mentioned. They're much less likely to join social clubs, Moose, Elk, Rotary, Kiwanis Club. So um, post-Tocvillian post America, no more. Yeah, and, and, and what, what jumps out from those statistics is that the, the employer has become their primary formal connection to society. And so it almost kind of makes sense that they're putting much more of their expectations onto those employers. Uh, you know, when I think about my father, who was a, uh, a child of the depression, he went to work, no question in my mind, to make money. You know, if he wanted to change the world, make the world a better place, he'd do that through his church or through his, uh, 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 you know, the Rotary Club or whatever, but he went to work to make money. When I talk to my children, uh, they want their employer to to be doing good in society. They see their employ their job as their purpose. They really put way more of their heart and soul into that uh, employment relationship. And I think that's part of the change. It's it is a generational change in how people think about work. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a thing. It's certainly a thing, especially a, a sociological thing. Preparing for this conversation, Alan, I saw an old interview you did with Larry Page, who was then the CEO of Alphabet, um, uh, which is, of course, Google. I, I, I'm curious, and you, you hold Google up again as, as this new kind of company. In terms of good and bad, certainly from the point of view of corporations, I'm assuming that the great 
controversies now are going to be between the Larry Pages of the world, the senior executives and their workers, not just about forming unions, but all sorts of moral issues. As seen at a company like Google, there are more and more disputes within the company about what Google shouldn't and shouldn't shouldn't be doing when it comes to Roe versus Wade, when it comes to freedom, when it comes to the Ukrainian war, which I know you have some strong opinions about. This is good, I guess, if if we're looking for a soul of capitalism. It, it might not be so good for Wall Street, though, do you think? Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. Look, I, I, I do think you're right. I mean, when we talk about stakeholder capitalism, what that just means is that the job of people like Larry Page, of the CEOs of, of, of large companies, has gotten much more difficult. They can't just pay attention to Wall Street. They have to be in tune with their employees. They have to be in closer touch with their potential customers. They have to be paying attention to what society expects of them in a much greater way than they did 40 years ago. So so that is right. The con- that's where a lot of these conversations about climate, about diversity, uh, about inequality are are happening. Um, it, it, it's a uh, it's a big, big change. But I'm sorry, the question the question you were asking was I lost my train of thought. Well, my, my question is, um, is this good? I guess, is this good or bad for American capitalism? I guess it depends on. Oh, shareholders. You were asking capitalism. Yeah, you were asking if it's if it's bad for for shareholders that employees that companies are having to spend uh, all this time talking to their employees and their and society and worrying about the environment. The evidence that exists to date is kind of mixed. Um, I'm sure in the short term. Uh, there are times when a company's decision to do something for the environment or for its employees is at the cost of its shareholders. So in the short term, there could be some trade-off. But the evidence I've seen suggests in the long term, the trade-offs kind of go away. Uh, Again, you cannot be a successful company in a planet that's on fire. You cannot be a successful company in a society that's at war with itself. Um, and, and, and so a lot of these conflicts between shareholders and stakeholders that clearly exist if you're focused on how do I make money in the next three months go away once you start to focus on how do I make money in the next 50 years. It's interesting, by the way, you look at the four companies that were behind the Business Roundtable statement uh, in 2019 on stakeholder capitalism. Uh, uh, Mary Barra at GM, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, um, uh, Alex Gorsky at Johnson and Johnson, and who was the uh, who was the fourth? All of them were companies that have, that have been around for more than a hundred years. So it's companies with a focus on the long term, where these trade offs between shareholders and other stakeholders tend to disappear. Alan, the one territory we haven't discussed is government. One of the reasons why there's a kind of existential crisis, I guess, in America more broadly when it comes to spirituality is the lot of loss of legitimacy trust in government, which uh, Carolyn Chen writes about. What about the role of government? We've done many shows about the need, for example, for regular for regulation to protect innovation. One with two law professors recently, uh, Ariel Ezrachi and Morris Stuckey on regulating 
big uh, big tech barons to yeah. protect startup entrepreneurs. What's the role of government in all this, Alan? I know you're not a big fan of big government, but you're not a, a hardcore libertarian either. No, I spent the first half of my career uh, in Washington uh, covering uh, the intersection of business and government from the government side. And I, when I left in 2005 and moved to New York, it was uh, partly with a feeling that the ability of government to seriously address problems rather than get caught up in this uh, polarizing game of trying to win points for the next election had deteriorated so much. I thought at the time, foolishly, it couldn't possibly get worse. And of course, it did get much worse after 2005. So and, and no question, part of what you're seeing in the business community is a reaction to the failure of government. We have to take on climate, business leaders tell me, because the government isn't. Uh, we have to deal with uh, uh, diversity and inclusion because the government isn't. We have to deal with training uh, the disadvantaged so that they can participate in uh, fully participate in capitalism because the government isn't. Um, so uh, uh, there is a, you know, government is an important part of the equation. It hasn't been functioning very well. I would point out that, you know, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but you've, you've seen in the U.S. some pretty, you know, small but good examples of action in the last two years. You look at the infra bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed early on. You look at this climate bill that just happened over the weekend. You look at some of the things that are happening on uh, 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 the uh, chip chip production and so forth. So uh, there, there are at least a few people in Washington who are trying to make that better, but, but government's failures are clearly part of what's uh, driving uh, the change in business. Alan, we did a show uh, last week with Nancy Jacobson, a friend of our mutual friend, Gary Shapiro. She started and CEO of No Labels. She argues that if Trump, Biden run against each other in 2024, it'd be a black swan moment for a third party candidate. If that happened, do you think we could get a real business leader, a real representative of corporate America that might somehow reestablish the credibility of government, given that as you're suggesting, the soul of America might lie in tomorrow's capitalism? I, I know Nancy well. I know no labels well. I respect what they do. I think that's wishful thinking. Uh, the, the Ross Perot uh, option. Um, you know, we, we the problem with our political system, uh, Michael Porter did a very interesting piece in uh, Fortune five years ago that diagnosis. It said it's like a duopoly in business. It actually works well for the two duopolists. You know, the Republicans and Democrats are bringing in more money than they've ever brought in. They, they have very successful operations going. They see no need to change. Uh, and so they're invested in maintaining the system as it currently stands. It just doesn't work very well for the consumers, for us, the citizens, the people who have to consume what they do. Um, and and uh, I, I think that's, I, I don't think it's, it's going to be a black swan moment that will change that. It needs to change, but it's going to require a concerted effort. I guess what I'd like to see business do is, is maybe get a little more involved in some of these democratic process reform movements. Uh, uh, get rid of gerrymandering, have open primaries, have ranked choice voting, have the kinds of things that can re-empower the center and change the dynamic that leaves all of the power with the extremists on both sides. Um, I, I do think business could play a, 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 an effective 
uh, role there, but it won't it won't be easy and it won't happen overnight. Yeah, and citizen assemblies as well. That's a really interesting idea. Anyway, uh, Alan, congratulations on the new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. You search every day for that soul. You do a lot of daily uh, podcasts and, 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 and blogs at, at Fortune. Remarkably productive man. I don't quite know how you do it. Uh, what else should people be reading? I assume you have a little bit of time, Alan, uh, for other reading. What, in addition to Tomorrow's Capitalist, should people be reading to make sense of tomorrow's world generally? Tomorrow's well, world of capitalism and perhaps social justice. Yeah, look, I, I have focused in this conversation on my sense that business is getting better. Again, maybe not as fast or as much as we want, but it is getting better. But I have to say my reading uh, lately has been the counterexamples. I, 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 last week, I just finished reading Boundless, which is a new book, actually comes out tomorrow. I was reading, reading a review copy on Carlos Ghosn. Oh yeah, we're doing a we're doing an interview actually uh, with one of the authors, Nick Kristof, on Wednesday. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really good book and a sad story of somebody who was such a talented businessman and did really did turn around Nissan, uh, uh, did great things to advance the electric car, but at the end of the day, got caught up in his own hubris and desire for for power uh, and money. Uh, and misuse of corporate funds and and ultimately a, a, a sad end. So I think that's worth a read. I, I also have recently read two books on the opioid crisis, business role in the opioid crisis. One is Empire of Pain by mm. Patrick Keefe. Fascinating on the show too. Yeah, remarkable yeah. book. Really great book. And then the newer one is American Cartel by a couple of Washington Post reporters that looks well beyond the Sacklers at the role that the big... Uh, drug distributor companies and the and the uh, the uh, farm uh, the uh, drugstore companies had uh, in the crisis you know clearly both examples of where the uh, uh, social good was trampled in the pursuit of profits uh, so it's not uh, a we, uh, you you've got your book on the search for the soul of business are we going to get a book on the search for the soul of Alan Murray next I don't think anybody's going to waste their time with that one, but I appreciate you asking. 